Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Well, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, happy Easter. Yeah, my family and I are glad to be back with you. I'm going to move this out over here, too. I'm really just messing everything up now. I just like, I like to be close to people. So if I wander into the middle of the aisle, you'll know it's because I just want to be close to you. But uh, so um, I'm so glad to be preaching here this morning. I think that when uh, Aaron asked me, it was in November actually. So, you know, this wasn't like a, I'm really tired. Maybe instead of preaching Easter this week, Taylor will. Like he planned this. So, um, uh, and when he asked, I said, wow, Aaron, are, are you vacationing over Easter? I mean, I know we're church planters, but that's really odd. And he said, no, no, no. Yeah, he was definitely going to be here. But I want uh, to ask you, Aaron, why did you ask me to preach here today? Or why did you not decide to preach this Easter morning yourself? Why not? <laughs> you know, I think I asked you that question in November. And uh, your, your answer was a little bit more robust. You kind of clarified that you were definitely going to be here, uh, but that you wanted to include more voices on this Easter day. And I really appreciated that. I thought that was a beautiful vision for an Easter Sunday when we see in the gospel stories uh, a multitude of people who reflect the love of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Today, Christians around the globe celebrate together that Jesus defeated evil, sin, death, and ushered in an exhibition of the kingdom of God in which we are all invited to be a part of. Today, now, not just someday in heaven, but right now. Jesus did this in a way that was revolutionary, completely upsetting the expectations of the people of his time. He didn't come and overthrow the Roman government with military might, or he didn't uh, become popular and powerful and well-loved enough to rise in influence or prominence. No, in one of the most counterintuitive and countercultural and unexpected moves God could ever make, Jesus overcame evil with good, overcame sin with love, and overcame death with life. In fact, Jesus made his suffering the springboard of our redemption and the redemption of the world. So that's what we're talking about today. Friends, I know it can be really hard to understand, to look at the picture of Jesus' walk toward the cross, to look at the cross and understand exactly how it is that this was accomplished through Christ's suffering. I know that's not an easy thing to take in. So today, I want to look at the example of some people that we don't often hear a lot about in the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. And that's the women who remained present with Jesus in his suffering at the cross, in his burial, and in the empty tomb. They remained present in his suffering and in their own suffering, in loss, in grief, and in death. And while the supernatural work of Christ that was happening as he hung on the cross and was laid in the tomb can be difficult for us to, to perceive, we catch glimpses of it as we look at these women who stayed close to Christ. 
and their experience of suffering and redemption can help us today to understand how the death and resurrection of Jesus reverses loss and grief and death even in our own life now and forever. So if you have a Bible handy, you can turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41, or you can just listen. Either way, listen to this story of Jesus walking toward crucifixion, Mark 15, 33 to 41. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sebechthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. In this picture of Jesus on the cross, we see painted the great suffering of Christ. And it's, it's really hard to even imagine this intense amount of pain and suffering. I could give you lots of gory details. Maybe you've heard other sermons with lots of gory details about crucifixion and what that was like. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm actually not going to do that today. It was the most brutal form of torture and murder combined. And it was actually really pervasive in the lives and world of the Jewish people at that time under Roman rule. People were crucified every day for infractions that ranged from adultery to treason. And you may have heard in previous Easter messages, you may have heard people even say that Jesus' disciples went into hiding and as he suffered on the cross, he was abandoned by everyone and suffered alone. But that's not true. In fact, yes, many of his disciples did hide, but not all. John's account teaches us that John was near. Not all of them hid, not all of them ran. Some of them stood at a distance, but still others stood closer. You see, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he welcomed women to come and be a part of his traveling band of disciples, which was very odd for that time. And they went with the 12 named men, and together they traveled the region with Jesus. And these women had often been healed by Jesus, like Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus cast seven demons. And Luke tells us that these women left their lives behind, much like the 12 disciples, and even supported Jesus' ministry financially out of their own means. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he writes, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured 
of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. These are the friends of Jesus who stayed as Jesus suffered. There's a great website called the Junia Project, and it offers a gospel analysis of the women who stays, writing, Matthew and Mark note that there were many women watching in the crowd that day. All of the gospel writers mention a few women specifically, and presumably those are ones that would have been known to their audience. Matthew names Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark also names Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and then adds Salome. Luke identifies Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. John expands that list to include the mother of Jesus, his mother's sister, and Mary of Clopas, in addition to Mary Magdalene. Some scholars believe that, you know, there may be some overlap in that. In fact, often when the mother of James is referred to, we think it is likely the mother of Jesus as well. Uh, but the fact remains that even with overlap six to Eight women are singled out of many women mentioned that the text is telling us about. And for many of us, this radically changes our vision of who was present at the time of Jesus' suffering and in the final week of his life. As I look at this scene on the cross and these women standing close refusing to leave, I am compelled to ask what enabled them to be present to the suffering of Jesus when so many others fled in fear, or at the very least, kept their distance. At first, I thought that perhaps they were at less risk than the men were. Perhaps that's why they were able to stay. Perhaps they were at less risk of being imprisoned or killed themselves. But just a quick look at history shows us that the Romans had absolutely no qualms about crucifying women. They would crucify anyone, not just women, but children as well. It was not uncommon in that time for entire households to be crucified if one person was found guilty of insurrection. And in a three-year period when the Judeans rose up against the Roman rule, there were 3,600 people, including multiple families, crucified just in those three years. And so, yes, they were at great risk. Their lives were at great risk as they stood with someone who was being crucified for himself being an insurrectionist. And yet here they are, standing close to Jesus as he suffered for them and for us. So perhaps, perhaps it was the suffering that they had known in their lives as women of that time. Life was harsh for everyone back then. You know, they didn't have flush toilets, running water, right? Things that, that we just can't live without anymore. But life was particularly harsh for women, children, and slaves who had next to no rights friends. They were generally considered the property of their fathers, husbands, or owners. Women had no reasonable property rights of their own. They were betrothed, often before the age of 12, they could be divorced for any reason from burning dinner to adultery, and they had no means of actually pursuing a divorce if, say, they were in a situation of domestic violence or any other reason. Women had to be associated with a patriarchal household, much like you think of the Taliban in present day, and they were not accepted as witnesses in a court. They were not educated, and they were often considered ceremonially unclean because of menstruation. 
And as is common today in places all over the world where clean water, abundant food, or health care is lacking, childbirth was a deadly ordeal for every woman. And many women mourned many losses of children that died in childbirth and risked death themselves every time they came to that moment. So was it the pain of their daily life that taught them to suffer and enabled them to stand close to Jesus? Perhaps it was the supernatural suffering that so many of them had experienced. Many of these women had been saved from demon possession and illness. In addition to suffering the common plights of women of that time, they lived their lives as outcasts, people to be despised and feared and hated. Even Jesus' very own mother was a teenage girl who insisted that God got her pregnant. You don't get over that very quickly, even after you're married, right? People don't forget that about you. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 writes that suffering produces perseverance, that perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Before this beautiful truth was so eloquently written down by Paul, we see it lived out here in the lives and examples of these common everyday women. Whatever the source they drew from, these women knew how to lose. They knew how to weep and mourn. They knew how to face pain and death. And they knew how to do these things with a courage that enabled them to stand closer to Jesus than anyone else in the moment when Jesus reversed it all. And even though that they couldn't see it at that time as they stood there, they still didn't leave. Not even when Jesus was removed from the cross. Let's look at Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56, where it says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from a Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Friends, it is uncomfortable to suffer, but it's also uncomfortable to watch others suffer. However, when I look at these women and remember their life experience, I can see how their suffering was being used for good. Even in their deepest grief, they were ministering to each other and to Jesus as they prepared to anoint him with spices and perfume to prepare him for final burial. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong here because I in no way believe that, uh, that God caused their suffering for this purpose. I believe that God mourned the life losses that they had experienced. I don't believe God orchestrated this. I don't believe God allowed Mary to be possessed by demons so that Jesus would heal her, so that she would be present at the cross, or even for what would follow. 
But I do believe that as these women experienced the hardship of life and experienced suffering in a broken world, God met them in their suffering and brought something profoundly beautiful out of the ashes of their pain. Because they knew how to suffer and because they knew Jesus, because they trusted God as apprentices of Jesus, they could function for good in the midst of their suffering. And you know, we actually have a name for something like this now. We call it cognitive flexibility. Has anybody heard of this? Yes? So in 2012, a study by the American Psychological Association found that cognitive flexibility helps people who've experienced trauma and loss reframe their suffering away from maladaptive or bad beliefs about God, such as uh, moving away from the belief that I have been hurt, therefore God doesn't love me and is weak, to instead recognizing I have been hurt, but I have grown through this suffering, and I have seen God's love and power in that growth. And our brains, they found, and I would argue our souls, have the ability to develop better and better cognitive flexibility over time and experience. There is something about how we were designed that enables us to perceive meaning in the midst of suffering and be transformed by it. More than anything, that transformation of suffering teaches me about the true nature of redemption, which can sometimes be a hard concept to really understand. Richard Rohr writes that on the cross, Jesus showed us how to hold pain and let it transform us, rather than project it elsewhere. I believe one of the greatest meanings of the crucifixion, he writes, is its revelation of God's presence in the midst of suffering. God suffers with us. The mystery of the cross has the power to teach us that our suffering is not our own, and my life is not about me. Instead, we are actually living inside of a larger force field of life and death. One moves from me to us inside of this field of deep inner experience. And this, this is the gateway to compassion and thus redemption. When I can see and accept my suffering as a common participation with Jesus and all humanity, I am somehow saved and I become whole in Christ. And this is, of course, incredibly hard to do when we're in the midst of suffering, right? It's incredibly hard to see that truth when we ourselves are suffering. But even when we may feel alone or abandoned, as Jesus did on the cross, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can trust, as the women did at his feet, that divine love is still present and is still holding us. And we, in this day and age, thankfully know the end of the story from the beginning, that after death comes resurrection, after injustice comes liberation, after wounding comes healing. But that doesn't mean that we skip over the darkness of the tomb. And the women in the story certainly didn't. They followed Jesus' body as it was removed from the cross so that they would know right where it was placed so that they could return and continue their vigil of presence. And Luke 24 records their return. He writes, On the first day of the next week, of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, 
they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. They must have been so excited, right? And to all the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what could possibly have happened. John adds to this story in his gospel, and he writes that Mary of Magdalene was right behind Peter when he left, but she stayed. Again, she stayed. This is what he writes. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, at one head and at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my, away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And now I never know how to read these words of Jesus at this point. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus was being coy and playful with her and asked her, woman, why are you crying? What are you looking for? Or if Jesus was speaking with the compassion that she clearly needed that, at that moment and asked her, woman, why are you crying? What are you looking for? But thinking the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Can you imagine that? Imagine what she's saying for a moment. She's saying to this gardener, tell me where his body is, and I will go and take his body myself. One single woman pulling Jesus' body somewhere. I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, just one word. Who remembers what that word is? Anybody? You can say it if you do. He said, Mary. He just said her name. It's the one word Jesus said to her. It's the one word she needed to hear to recognize her Lord and Savior. Jesus said her name. Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And you know at that moment she must have ran toward him and thrown her arms around him and given him a giant bear hug because the next thing Jesus says is, do not hold on to me. <laughs> For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news. I have seen the Lord. And she told him, that he, them, that he had said these things to her. 
Friends, I can hardly think of a more beautiful illustration of the upside-down, inside-out kingdom of God. Jesus picks a person whose testimony would count for nothing, for nothing in the courts of his day. He picks this person to be his own personal emissary with the greatest news that he had to share. And because of this task of delivering the resurrection news to the disciples, Mary has historically, outside of the Protestant faith, been referred to as the Apostle of Apostles. Inside of the Protestant faith, she has been referred to as a prostitute. Can you believe that? But Mary, Apostle of the Apostles, carried this news, a fitting title for one sent to proclaim the resurrection of Christ, the new creation and the redemption of the world to all of Jesus' friends and family. You know, in that gift, I see God redeeming Mary's suffering. Though God wept, for the pain that she experienced from being demon-possessed to walking as a woman with Jesus through the tumultuous ups and downs of his daily ministry, to standing at the foot of the cross and watching him die, to journeying to the empty tomb, to not being believed by the people that she loved most, and finally to being back at the empty tomb and weeping for the loss of the one person in the world who meant the most to her. God wasted none of it. All of it he used to ready her for this moment when she would be the first to understand that we are made whole and complete by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all three parts, all together. In the life of Jesus, God came to us, reversing the distance that we had created by choosing ourselves and our will over God's. In his death, Jesus reverses the effects of sin and suffering, proving that God wastes nothing in our lives, but is able to use everything to draw us to his kingdom. And in his resurrection, we see God reversing the world as we know it and truly creating all things new and inviting us to join God in that creative work, in that kingdom work, as we, like the women who followed him, stand closer to Jesus. Friends, there's no better news that we can share on any day of the week, Easter or any other, right? Because of their suffering, these women were prepared to be present to suffering at the cross, at the empty tomb, in loss and grief and in death. And even though the work of Jesus has brought us toward the redemption of all things, we're in that period of already and not yet, right? This work is already happening, but not yet made complete. And so today, we still suffer. We see it in the world around us. We suffer, our friends suffer. But as we stand closer to Christ, we see reflected in his love and redemption. We see his love and redemption reflected in those experiences. And the closer that we get, the clearer the image of Jesus and his love becomes. And so now I want to give us an opportunity to pray together, to step into a new hope 
and new life in places where maybe you are experiencing suffering. Maybe it's a place where you have lost a little hope. Maybe you're looking for meaning, and maybe you feel far from Jesus, but today would consider taking just one step closer. And so I'm gonna ask us to just, however you, however you want to, you can bow your head, you can look up, I don't, I don't care how you sit, but open yourself up to, um, to making yourself available to God. And as we come to this place, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to, to recall, bring to our mind, Holy Spirit, a place where we need you deeply. A place where we need your newness of life. And I'm going to give you just a minute of silence to think about this place. Where do you need hope and new life? Is it a relationship or a decision? Is it a past hurt? now in the midst of that relationship, hurt, or decision, I want to invite you to ask Jesus to come and sit or stand with you in that place. Perhaps there's a place that means a lot to you. Maybe it's a room. Maybe it's nature wherever you find yourself, I want to invite you to ask Jesus to come and stand close to you. Or maybe even take a step closer to him yourself. And you might even think about holding out your hands. You can do this now. You can do it in your mind. And looking at this place where you need new life and new hope with Jesus. as you hold that need in your hands would you ask Jesus Lord will you meet me in my suffering would you ask Jesus Lord Lord will you breathe new life into this place that feels dead ask Jesus, Lord, will you show me how to partner with you in this new creation as you bring something beautiful out of what may only look like ash? Father, I want to invite each of us to be amazed by the unexpected ways that you show up the struggles that we face. Lord, we know that in your redemption, light is overcoming darkness and wrongs are being made right and chaos is being returned to your shalom, to your incredible and complete peace. 
And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that in those places of our life that need healing and new life, that you would meet us in those, that you would bring your completeness and wholeness to them. Teach us, Lord, how to stand close to you. And as we stand close to you, make us mindful of the ways that you are not wasting a single moment of our experience or our life, that you are using every bit of it to create in us new hearts, to create in us the image of yourself, and to welcome us into the kingdom of your love now and forever. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.